Welcome to the Rise to the Challenge podcast. Joined today, she's a speaker, author, entrepreneur, and marathon runner. It's Cindy Gersh. How are you doing today, Cindy? I'm so great. Thank you, Alex, so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. We're so excited to have you on the show to talk about your rise to the challenge. What we like to do with all of our guests is go right to the beginning. Talk about where you're from and what do you like doing growing up? So I am originally from Buffalo, New York, Western New York, and I I'm like always will be a Buffalonian at heart. Um, yeah, so I grew up, you know, in a small suburb right outside of Buffalo and absolutely, I was involved in all activities. I ran track. I was a cheerleader. I had a ton of friends. So we just did like, you know, would go to the, like, I'm totally dating myself, but would like, <laughs> you know, go to the mall and hang out, go to the movies. And I grew up, Lockport has a canal. So we would like hang out at the canal a lot. It was just, I loved growing up there. It was like such a great place. And I often tell people that like, I grew up with not a lot of money. Like my dad was a janitor and my mom didn't really work until my brother was in school um, for, you know, all day. But like, I never knew that we didn't have money. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like we always had everything that I ever needed or wanted. We just couldn't go on like vacations and we didn't have like fancy cars or anything um, because and I had like the best childhood growing up. It was amazing. So yeah, I miss Buffalo a lot. You talked about all the different activities. Were you someone that had that like attribute where you got along with everyone? You were able to talk to people and just have fun and enjoy being a kid. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, you know, my uh, it's it's just sort of who I am and always have been. Like I'm an ENNP. If you do like any, you know, the personality things, I'm an Enneagram three, I'm an Aries, like everything like matches up to who I am. Just very extroverted always like, you know, sticks up for like the little guy, just had a bunch of friends and but was never like a mean girl. You know what Mm -hmm. I mean? It would never like be mean to someone who wasn't in our group or whatnot. So yeah, since I was little, my mom says like, you always had friends around you. And still to this day, I'm still friends with a lot of my friends that I graduated from high school with in 1993. Again, I'm old. We have our 30 year reunion coming up this year, which is insane. And I'm still friends with quite a few of them. I wish I could say the same with my friends in high school, because I don't think I talked to one person. I think everyone just went their separate ways. And you mm-hmm. have those cliques that kind of stay formed together. But it just shows like the huge bond that you guys had from that time to you guys can continue to learn more about each other now. Yeah, absolutely. And we do. And, you know, it's funny because we live all over the country. I'm in Atlanta, some are in New York City, Texas, all like we're all spread all over the country as well. And when I went to college, I actually have no really no friends from college wow. because I just feel like all that I've kept in contact with because I just feel like all I don't know, none of them could really match up, I guess, with my high school friends that I grew up with. And so those are and we, you know, my true like family to me. And we try to get together once a year somewhere within the country. And like when we do, it's like we haven't missed a beat. Like we la- we just literally will get an Airbnb with a pool and not even go anywhere and just for three days, just sit and laugh and be in our pajamas and watch movies. And it's like I have chills talking about it because I love them so much. And I just, you know, it's it's like you just don't miss a beat. They're like family when you think of them, when you're with them. It's like this warm feeling. I can't explain it. As you're growing up, who was a big motivator or inspiration for you? Yeah, my dad was definitely like my biggest cheerleader. He was such a hard worker that, you know, I said, you know, unfortunately, my dad passed away very suddenly 
um, almost nine years ago. And I said, I read during his eulogy, I said, you know, he was the type, he, so he was a janitor for 30 years at this elementary school. And when he passed away, it's amazing how many students from the elementary school, and he had, he had been retired for like 10 years, had come back to, to his wake or his funeral because they remember Mr. Green is like this amazing janitor. And so while he didn't have this like, you know, fancy job, you know, it was very blue collar. He took such pride in his job. He loved his job so much. And like every morning, no matter what, like whether it was Christmas or whatever, he had to go to the school and like raise the flag and he would do it like every morning, 630 in the morning, he'd be at the school raising the flag. And I just remember him being like this dedicated hard worker. And he always said like to all of his kids, like, you can do like more than what I'm doing. You know, like he wanted us to be more. And he was the dad who was like every single event. Like I, like I said, I cheerleaded and he'd go to like him and my mom would go to like the away basketball games just to see me cheerlead. So he was my number one fan. And he was definitely the person who inspired me to like be the person who I am today without a doubt. Are the things that he taught you at your young age, what you still do today and you kind of introduce to your kids? Absolutely. For sure. There's, you know, my dad in, in so many ways, I, I, I'm so much like my dad. It's unbelievable. I look like my mom, but my personality is a hundred percent my dad. So I'm finding that I'm doing like even little things like, like holiday traditions that were very small are carrying over to my, my children. Or like telling, you know, I'm a big storyteller. Um, and people used to say all the time, like, oh, there goes Cindy again. She's being a Ron again, you know. And so, yeah, I'm so much like my dad in so many ways. And I really credit him for me being who I am today. Because honestly, I wasn't the best student in college or in high school. I wasn't like straight A's. And I really think that it was my personality and the fact that I was outgoing and can network and can talk to people that kind of got me to where I am today. And that's a hundred percent my dad. 100%. Sometimes he talk to like a tree. I'm not kidding. Like he literally, we would be places and he would just randomly talk to people like wherever we were. And that's completely me. That's a hundred percent me. That's like my grandmother. I, my mom and I always joke that my grandmother could talk to a wall and become <laughs> friends with that. And I kind of taken that personality where you just got to be open with people and because you never know who you're going to meet and That's right. that person can become a future best friend and yeah. you might be able to network and connect and she'll meet someone and be like, oh, this person does similar to what you do or they have something really. I'm like, how did you, how did you find this out? But yeah. like your dad, you're able to talk to anyone easily. Absolutely. And I, you know what else I like, there are times where like, if I, you know, I used to travel a lot for my corporate job and I would be on the plane and I, sometimes I just don't want to talk, but sometimes I would. And, you know, like you said, and one of the things that I've noticed from being as big of a traveler as that I am or was, is that everybody has a story and that's the honest God truth. And I, you know, I used to say, I'm going to write a book called Airplane Tales, just telling everybody's stories that I would find like sitting next to me on the plane or in the airport because, or sitting at a bar. Cause you know, when you're traveling by yourself, you just sit like at the bar to order your food yep. in the airport. And I was like, because I don't know if it's because you're never going to see that person again, or because you feel vulnerable because you're about to go on an airplane. I don't know what it is, but it seems like people talk more when you're in that setting. And yeah. so I like the stories that I would hear when I was in an airplane, it was crazy to me. 
just crazy. I feel like that would be a great book. I know, right? Why did I not do that? Like, (laughs) maybe I still can. I don't know if I can remember all the stories, but I don't know why I didn't do that. Sometimes we're asked that fun question, what is that dream job? When you were growing up, what was that dream job that you were wanting? 100%. And I went to school and I really thought I was going to be this was an entertainment reporter. So, you know, like E! News, like yep. on, on the red carpet, like it, the um, Emmys or the Grammys, like living in LA, living that lifestyle, like that was my dream, even through college. And I was a, re- a regular, like a news reporter for six years. But then I realized like, it's just, it's first of all, it's super hard to get into that world. Um, and I just realized like reporting wasn't for me. Now, had I lived in LA and I had like a connection and I could start, could have started there. I think things would have been completely different, but that was like my dream. Like, yeah, I'm going to be like interviewing all these stars and you know, that was absolutely my dream. You talked about after high school, you went to college and grades weren't the great or school wasn't the greatest for you. What was the biggest thing it taught you about yourself during your college time? You know, I think it really made, first of all, it made me appreciate, like, um, you know, it's the first time I was away from home, right? So it made me appreciate my parents, like, way more than I ever did. But I think, so yeah, I think more than anything, it taught me, like, this independence that, Mm -hmm. you know, I didn't, obviously, I had, you know, your parents, like, let you get a little bit more independent as you get older and whatnot. But it really forced me to become this independent person in a lot of ways to be, I mean, they were still paying, you know, you had your meal cards, so they were still yep. paying for your food and whatnot, but things like laundry that you had to take care of, you know, on your own and really having your, making your own schedule. So meeting with, you know, administration to figure out what schedules you wanted and ensuring that, you know, like I had a work study program, so I had to work in the library, like what that looks like and just kind of navigating sort of life with this new, you know, you're, you're going to college but then you're also trying to be independent. So it was a lot. And I think that that was sort of a big lessons learned for me. And then also not to sound, I definitely don't want to sound like I'm this like being conceited or narcissistic or cocky in any way, but Lockport's a very small town. And I knew everybody in that city. Like I was mm-hmm. like, sort of like I was friends with everybody. So to go from being sort of like a big fish in a small p- pond to like nobody caring about me, no- nobody knowing who I was, that was very eye-opening to me as well. Cause I was like, wait, you don't, I don't know any, like these people don't care who I am. I don't know who any of them are. So that was also very, like very eye-opening, huge lessons learned with that one as well. Having that eye-opening experience, were you afraid to maybe make mistakes or do something that might make people think of you differently because no one knew who you were? Yeah, for sure. And, you know, one of the things that I had struggled with a lot was joining a sorority, right? Because I, oh, I always had all of these friends, but then in the back of my mind, I was like, why do I, and again, things are very different in the South. I feel like I need to say that because I live in Atlanta. Sororities in New York are very different than they are down here. Um, So I think things, if I would have been down here, things would have been very different. But up there, I was like, I don't want to feel like I have to pay for friends. And that was kind of how I felt in my mind. And I do think that in some ways that did hurt, like, I think it did hurt me because I lived on campus freshman year. Then I moved in with my sister and we lived in the community. I went to Brockport. We lived in the village. And then my junior and senior year, I actually moved to uh, Rochester, which was like a half an hour away. So I wasn't even in the community of Brockport. Like, so all my friends were, 
So I was at college and then I was out. Like I was like, no, I don't think I really like experienced the college life that most people have. And I really think it's because I didn't join a sorority when like all the sororities were trying to get me to pledge. And I, and so I think in some way, like they were like, forget that girl. Like she's not a sorority sister. We don't. So I think that that was a big, um, yeah, I think that that sort of really made me realize like, oh God, maybe I made a mistake here. Now though, where I am in life, I don't, I don't regret it at all. You know, I really believe that everything happens for a reason. And as I talk about this in my, when I speak, do my long speeches that every single moment in your life, every either pivotal or small moment really does, it happens to lead you to where you are in this moment in life. And I really truly believe that. So I don't think I was meant to be in a sorority. I love that everything happens for a reason because I think it's so true. Like you might not think that this is supposed to be on your path, but when you get to the next step, it's like, okay, I needed to get through that one obstacle or that one path to get to where I need to go. And it's so true nowadays. 100%. And I I don't, you know, real quickly, I just have to tell my everything happens for a reason story. I'm going to try to make it really quick. Um, so I was a marathon runner running and I had run 13 marathons and my goal was always to qualify for Boston mm-hmm. at the New York city marathon. Right. So I had trained, trained, I was like, you know, doing all the things and I got to New York and I knew I was going to qualify for Boston. I knew it like my time. I just, in fact, I was going to qualify and have time left and I get to New York and for the first time ever, it didn't even happen after nine 11, the marathon got canceled because of Hurricane Sandy. And I was like, devastated, because I put in so much time and energy, you know, head and drank in six months was eating all, you know, only protein and carbs, like doing all the things that you're supposed to be doing, not sleeping, because I'd be getting up and running, you know, at six o'clock in the morning to get my mileage in. And I just remember being so angry that it happened flew home, got home, whatever. Well, that April, the Boston Marathon was actually the Boston bombing marathon. So if I would have qualified, I would have been there for the Boston bombing. So my whole family was going to go, my husband and my kids. We had it all planned because I knew I was going to qualify in New York. Um, So then I qualified, of course, I qualified the next year and I actually ran the Boston Marathon the year after the bombing. And that in itself, running a marathon, have you ever ran a marathon? I have not. Okay. So running a marathon in and itself is just emotional, right? I, there, I, there's just something about it. I can't really explain it. But running Boston, which is like the Super Bowl for runners, mm-hmm. puts it to another level. And then you run it the year after this horrific event. And you're at like, oh, there's not even a word for to describe the emotions that surrounded that day. Like starting at the beginning, I was crying and I finished crying. And it was like, I didn't care about my time. Like I really was a marathon that I was just going to enjoy it. So I ended, you know, when your foot hits, like there's where, where, you know, your time is done, like your chip hits that thing, the running bar, whatever the heck it's called. And I just remember the speaker coming over the announcer saying marathon runners, if you're on the course, we want you to continue running Um, volunteers, police officers, spectators. We want you to pause what you're doing. This is the exact minute that the bombs hit last year. So my time if you look at my time and when I started and what corral I was in and everything, my time is to the exact minute that the bombs went off the year before. Now I know why I didn't run New York. Now I know. Because I would, my kids, my husband would have been at that. Like I have chills. I, I can't even tell you how many times I've told that story. And I still get chills every time. My husband, my two little kids, they were little at the time. 
would have been at the finish line. My mom, like all would have been at the finish line waiting for me. And who knows? Who knows what would have happened? So now I truly believe that is why I didn't run Hurricane Sandy. I 100% believe that. Was running marathon something that was in a vision for you to complete? As you talked about, track and field was something you enjoyed growing up. Was marathon like that next challenge that you wanted to face? No, at all. Not at all. I ran sprints. So I ran 100, 200, 4 by 100 relay, 4 by Completely different. Yeah, completely different. And I just remember I was trying to lose the baby weight after my first uh, daughter that I had, who's now 17, uh, 16, sorry. And I was at the gym and my husband, my now ex-husband put me on a treadmill and said, he put it at like 5.5, which is like 12 minute miles. And he was like, just run for as long as you can run until you hate it or you get tired or whatever. And I just remember on that treadmill, like, I can't like this, this isn't hard. And the next thing, and I'm a very, very sort of determined person. If I put my mind to something, like I'm going to, like I'm doing it. And so that happened in like August. And he said, I signed us up for a half marathon in March. And I was like, okay, like I just started running in August. And so I was like, okay, that's fine. I'll do it. And so I ran the half marathon here in Atlanta. And when I finished, I said, that was easy. I'm going to do a full marathon. And so I just did. I started training for a full marathon and I loved it. Like I was like, did never looked back. And then as soon as I ran the full marathon, I was like, okay, now I'm going to get into I'm going to get into all the big marathons, right? And so if you look at the marathons that I've done, they're all pretty notorious marathons besides the one that I qualified for Boston for because I chose a marathon that was a BQ, was a Boston qualifier. That's Mm -hmm. the only reason anyone runs this marathon is to qualify for Boston. And so I was like, okay, I'm going to run these three um, world major marathons, which are Boston, New York, and Chicago. And then my plan was to go run the other three, which are Berlin, London, and Tokyo. Obviously, that didn't happen. But I just, like, I love running. I can't even explain it. Like, I had, I still do. Like, I watch the Boston Marathon every year. I watch running if it's in the Olympics. I see people running on the streets, and I want to, like, cry because I really miss it. It was really truthfully, like, I did it for everything. Like the day that I found out my dad passed away that night that he, I found out at like 11 o'clock at night, I got to Buffalo the next morning, first thing in the morning. And that was the first thing I did. I just put on my running shoes and I ran for 16 miles that morning. I no sleep, you know, like just because I was like, I need to do this to clear my head. So it was everything. It was my therapy. It was obviously good for me health wise. I could eat what I wanted. And it just like, I, I loved it. I did it every day almost. I would run like I mean, I was up to like 70, 80 miles a week when I couldn't run anymore. When you were doing these training times, were you still a reporter or were you now in the next stage of your career? Yeah, no, they were all when I was here in Atlanta. So I was long past that. I was working for, you know, corporate and I was at corporate by then. Talk about the journey that you've been on mentally, physically, but health wise that you've gone through. Yeah, so my journey is really kind of an interesting one. So like you said, I started out, my first job sort of out of college was, um, well, I was a producer for a year, and then I got um, a job for CBS, a small CBS affiliate up in New York. And I did a lot of military reporting, because Fort Drum is up in Watertown, New York, which is a 10th Mountain Division. It's the heaviest deployed division in the army. So if some, if we deploy, they're the first to go, they're the last to come home with the army, at least not Marines, whatever. So 
I, I, you know, I was like, I'm going to be a reporter. I'm going to move on. Like, this is going to be my career. Well, then September 11th happened. And I was obviously as the military being my beat, they were like, okay, Cindy, you're at Fort Drum. You're our lead story at six. You're our lead story. Like you're basically it all day. You're doing our cut-ins, everything, get ready. And I was like, okay, well, the whole sort of day in and itself is you're way too young to remember it. I'm sure. I don't even know if you were alive, but um, was such an emotional, like there's no way to even describe the emotions that came over that day. Cause I was in a newsroom. So there were TVs that we were inundated with this horrible day that there's never been anything like, and there never hopefully will be. And I, my sister lives in New York city. Obviously I'm from Buffalo. I have a ton of friends and family who live in the city. So that's sort of your mind, but you know, we're going through it. And then six, Six o'clock news rolls around and at like five minutes to six, my sister calls me and is like, Eric is missing. And I knew that our friend, our good friend from Rochester had just taken a job about six weeks before at Canner Fitzgerald and he, he was missing. And that was five minutes before I went live. So I like was, it was just like the whole day sort of came over me and I really lost it. Like I, and I just remember my field producer being like, get your together, like, come on, like, you're already, and I just had to put my face on and like, do this live news story and go through the motions. And that's what I did. Cause that's what you do. Funny thing is, is I saw Dan Rather that night cry on the news. So I actually think I probably could have cried. Um, so that kind of wore on me a lot, knowing that like this job, I couldn't, sh- like, it was a lot. And then we started to deploy, right? Almost immediately that March, we started deploying, we deployed to Afghanistan. And then with deployments come casualties. So Mm -hmm. my news director was like, you need to go after we had our first casualty, you need to go find the widow and talk to her about like how she's feeling. And I said, with all due respect, how do you think she's feeling? Like she has two kids, like, or I don't remember any kids yet, but like, I'm not going to do this story. So long story short, I was like, or maybe long story long. I'm not like, I'm not going to, I'm not, I'm not going to do this. And I I eventually left reporting because of it. It was just too much for me. I just couldn't keep covering those stories that were so heartbreaking. Um, It was just too much for me. So then I switched over into marketing. I actually started working for um, a private company that was building homes on military installations. So I was still very embedded in the military world. And I did that forever, really, um, until for two different companies, until you know, I lost my job because I, I don't, I lost my job. I don't know, not because of, but I lost my job um, right after I was diagnosed with the disease that I have now. Going through that challenge with the disease, did you have any symptoms leading up to it that kind of prepared you or did it kind of happen out of nowhere? So it's funny because about for about three, the three years leading up to that, I knew something was off within my body. Right. And I kept coming back to the doctor and saying, I just like, I don't feel right. I can't really explain it, but I'm always tired. And I kind of feel like I sort of have the flu, but I don't have a fever. And they just couldn't legitimately. She sent me to every single type of doctor there is like infectious disease, cardiologist, like everything. To the point where I remember the infectious disease doctor looking at me and being like, your next doctor should be a psychiatrist. I think it's all in your head. And I was like, huh, okay, that's a really nice doctor. Way to guess like there. Um, And so obviously, whatever, it just kept going on. And I kept running through it. And 
going on with life, just thinking like maybe it's fibromyalgia or something that they don't know, you know? And then um, I actually had run a half marathon. And then the next week I was in the emergency room thinking I was having a stroke. And that's when the doctor in the emergency room said, the good news is you didn't have a stroke. The bad news is we think you have this disease, but it's super rare. Only 2% of the world has it. So you probably don't have it, but it's called fibromuscular dysplasia. We're going to ship your um, scans because I have a CTA off to Emory. So I'm really lucky that I live in Atlanta and we have Emory here. And it's one of like 17 hospitals in the world that deals with my disease. So super lucky when it comes to it that. And, you know, he was like, go on with your regular life because you probably don't have this disease. So I did it. I went on with my regular life. It was in the back of my head, but I was like, I'm not going to have this. 2% of the world has this. Sure. They looked at my scans wrong or whatever. Got into Emory like two months later and I had it. Wow. Yeah. Was this a complete shock, complete kick in the face, kick in the gut, whatever you want to call it. When you got, when they told you that news, what was going through your mind? Like things are going to have to change family. Do who do I tell things like that? Yeah. I mean, it was, like I said, it was like a punch in the gut, kick in the face, whatever you want to call it. It was so unexpected. I was 43. I, which is young, at least to me, because this disease, first I got to back up and say this disease, like I said, is very rare. It's an arterial disease that makes my arteries really weak. And your arteries can also be misshapen. And when they're misshapen, they cause pain. So like my vertebrals, carotid, renals, and iliacs are all misshapen. So they look like a bead of pearls. That's what we call it. And so FMD, um, you're at a much higher risk for strokes, aneurysms, dissections, heart attacks, TA, a bunch of fun things. And we have migraines all the time. Like it's just a really crappy disease. So I was like, I'm 43 years old, which is young-ish. I am running marathons. I'm a vegetarian. I don't really drink. I'm doing all the things that you're supposed to be doing. Like, how did this happen to me? Like what I just, and it was such a shock that when he said you actually do have it, I just remember it was like Charlie Brown, Brown's teacher. Like, wah, 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 wah. like, I didn't hear anything else except like, this is a serious disease. Yep. These are the things. And thank God that I was with, you know, my friends were with me. So like they were taking notes so they like kind of helped with everything, but it was, um, it was horrible. It was awful. It was like the biggest, I don't even know how to explain it. It was like the biggest shock. But, so when I say this all the time, my dad died suddenly and I was at the Falcons game. I got the phone call at like 11 o'clock at night. So it was a Sunday night game. And that was the worst phone call of my life. That was like the most shock I'd ever been in. Cause like he wasn't sick. Um, and then m- this was the next worst like biggest shock I've been in without a doubt. What kind of changes did you have to make or did you notice after that? Cause you know, they say, well, there might be treatment or there might not be treatment, but how did you move forward to try to still continue to enjoy the things that you liked, but maybe do it at a different pace or version of them? Yeah. So first I continued to work out as much as I could. I knew I, they said, absolutely cannot marathon, cannot half marathon. Like that's off, off the books. Like, so I continued working out through like Orange Theory Fitness and was feeling good with that until it progressed to my iliacs. And that's like a huge issue with me. Like I, my legs are in, like my legs are killing me right now. So I'm in like 
real. So when your legs are as bad as mine are, like I can't even barely work out anymore. Plus I'm on extremely, a lot of medicine. So it just doesn't work. Um, so yeah, like I, I had to stop working out, which was a huge, you know, heartbreaker for me from a former marathoner to not being able to work out at all. Huge. And then they give you a list of other things that you can't do. Like, and it's pretty extensive because you're at such a high risk for dissection, right? So they, things like chiropractors, roller coasters, jet skis, anything that's sort of jarring, no yoga, no sauna, it's like no deep tissue massages. So it was like, you keep, you're looking at these things and you're like, what, what can I do? You know, I have two kids, like they want to go to Disney world. Like I can't go on any of the rides. Like I'm like an old lady, like what, what's happening here. And so it really took, it took a long time for me to sort of shift that mindset where it was like, Okay. Like, and when I say a long time, like I legit hit rock bottom, it took pulling me out of that for me to realize that like, you can have this disease and still live. You just have to really change your outlook and change how you were doing things before. But it took a lot that did not come overnight at all. When you were feeling like you were hitting rock bottom, was there anyone that was there to help support you and be there to console you, to make, tell you that, you're going to be good. You're going to continue. We're going to find things that you'll still enjoy doing, keep you positive to get through it. So I say that one of the worst parts about this disease was that I lost about 90% of my friends, which is very common with people who have chronic diseases because we are not easy to be friends with. We have to cancel, you know, um, plans. We're just, you know, we're just not easy. And it's very, very common. Um, and so I was diagnosed in October and my now ex-husband left in March for a year deployment. He's active duty army. So he left. So I was stuck to face this very scary brand new diagnosis with two kids who were nine and 12 at the time as a single mom without a job because I lost my job. Literally, I came back from short term disability and two days later, I was part of a, a layoff. I was a reduction in force. So I I didn't have a job and I didn't, and like all my friends, 90% of my friends were gone, not my high school friends. They just don't live near me. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I say that was very difficult to me, but my sort of trademark phrase that I say all the time now is it's so much better to have one dime than 10 pennies, right? Like, wouldn't you rather have like a shiny dime carrying around than like 10 loose like pennies? And so, yeah, I had my one dime and I still do. Her name is Casey. She's like my sister. And she went with me to the doctor's appointments. Everyone, she took notes. She, I had to have surgery, unexpected, sort of in the middle of it. She took me to the hospital. She stayed with me. She took care of my kids. She would show up at like two o'clock in the morning because she knew I would be up. So she would just roll on up with like a blanket and some like chocolate. And we would sit in the, on the couch at two o'clock in the morning and watch trash TV until we had to get our kids ready for school the next morning. And I swear to you, if it was not for Casey, Like, I'm not sure that I would even be sitting here talking to you right now. Like, she dove into the trenches and literally pulled me up. There was no one else. I mean, my family, my mom, my sisters, but they're in New York. Like, it was, you know, they could only spend so much time down here. Casey lived right down the street from me. So, you know, it was like an everyday thing. She was checking on me. She was coming in. She was making sure I was eating or at least trying to eat, making sure my kids were okay. And so she really is like my family. She is like, and and I, I like, I get like, I feel like I'm getting a little emotional. This is what I get emotional is when I talk about her because she really like, she really like 
she did more for me than she will ever know that she did. I love hearing that that one person, Casey, was a huge part in your journey. And it's so true that those are your true friends, the true friends that feel like family, because no matter when you don't ask for help, they're going to help you no matter what you need. And I love hearing that story because it shows that if the roles were reversed, you would probably do the same thing for her. Oh, she was going through something. 100%. She's like, you know, my sister now. And when I sort of got out of my dark times and said, I'm going to live. And um, I said, and I'm going to start crossing things off my bucket list. And I said, I'm going to Africa for three weeks. That was the first thing I said, who wants to go with me? And she raised her hand and said, you're not going without me. (laughs) So it was like, you know, she, of course she is because she's like my girl. So, you know, she was the one we went to Africa for three weeks together and we had the best time. So yeah, it's just, you know, I think people are very lucky to, and I tell like my daughter this because she's had some issues with friends. I use that one dime phrase all the time because it's true. It's a hundred percent true. One, one dime. You just need that one good dime. How did you start becoming a speaker and what's the big message you're sharing to listeners when you're speaking? So I just, um, so I had always spoken when I was in the corporate world. I was vice president of corporate communications for two different developers. I'm obviously not afraid to talk. And so I would speak around the country about marketing things, social media, um, like branding, all of that sort of stuff. But I never like talked about my personal story. Mm -hmm. And so I was talking to, I don't even remember how it happened to be honest, but this one woman named Sketrude and She's and she, we were just like talking about, you know, networking and working together. And she was like, somehow we just got on like me, you know, she wanted to know more about me. So I just started telling her about my story and she was like, oh my God, like that is, I've never heard a story quite like yours before you realize that like, I know you're a good speaker. You realize that you could really help a lot of people with your story. Like you really, you really could. And I was like, really? Like okay, maybe. And so she invited me to speak at her conference. And that was the very first time I ever spoke like really in public about my story. And it's totally different, you know, because like, it's completely different. You're I felt so much more gullible. And I was so nervous. Because like, you know, I didn't want to get up there and like cry. And I wanted to be like as professional as possible. But I also wanted people to know like, this is a real raw, it gets dark story at times. Um, so she was the first person that I actually spoke like in front of in regards to my story. Um, and it was, uh, you know, ever since then, people have been coming up to me like, so now I'm like, in, right. I helped. I'm in a chapter of her book. I wrote a book and, and now people are, I'm like working with a coach to write my own book. And so like, it's crazy how things happen. Um, Cause I, in my mind, like I knew I had sort of a unique story, but I never knew that it would go as far as it is. And I love it because I really do think it's, it's helping people. I really do. You kind of said it earlier where everyone has a story. And I always think it's so true that people might be afraid to share it because they're thinking, oh, I'm not, I'm the only one that's gone through it. But like what you said, you're helping people because maybe they're like learning something. They maybe not have gone through everything exactly, but they can take a part and they can reflect and learn what they've gone through. And that's all huge about networking and connecting because it's the power nowadays with speakers is 
they're able to connect with so many people, even if they've never met them before. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I love that, you know, because through her, I met other people. I'm now in this like group that's all for speakers. And I met this coach, like I said, who I never would have met if it wasn't from her. Well, someone who was at that conference because of her. So like you said, it's been this sort of like big domino effect. And I love it. I love it. And, you know, yeah, I, at first I felt weird because I was like, why am I going to be talking about myself? Like, isn't that like, hmm, like narcissistic? Isn't that like a little like much? And she was like, no, because you're telling a story that really is going to help other people. Mm-hmm. And I've gotten tons of feedback, like people, especially my disease is 90% women. Um, so I've actually met other women online who like have my disease because I've been so vocal about it. I'm pretty big on social media about it as well, about my disease. Um, I talk, tell a lot of stories about my disease on social media. So that's where I've also met a lot of um women who have my disease, but also other spoonies. Have you heard of us? Have you heard of spoonie? What a spoonie is? I have not. So spoonies are, we call people who have chronic diseases spoonies because what it's the ref, the person who thought of it was like, you start off the day with a number of spoons and every time you do something, you know, it takes us, you know, so you lose a spoon. So every time you shower, you get rid of your spoon. You know, if you are doing work for a couple hours, you lose a spoon, like, because everything you do really as someone who has a chronic disease, it's not as easy as it, mm-hmm. it used to be, especially like on days like today, I'm not like my legs are really bad today. So it was like a sort of, you know, I worked from my bed for a lot of today because I could like play with my legs up. Um, and so, you know, that's why they're called spoonies. Um, Cause you're seeing how many spoons until you're done with the day and you're like in bed, all my spoons are gone. Like, so I've met like a lot of spoonies through me just being open, open and vocal about my story, which I love as well, because maybe they don't have FMD, but I have to tell you, like, we're not, my mom says this all, all, all the time. This is her phrase. We may not be in the same boat, but we're definitely on the same river. And like, that is, that is so true. Anyone with a chronic disease would say that. Is there a speaking event? This is kind of a fun question that you would like to be a part of and kind of share your story with. 100% I'd love to be a TEDx speaker, like not even close. Like I told my, and I am such a determined person. Like I say this all the time, like somehow I'm going to make it happen. I don't know how, Um, but like I set my mind to things like stupid things. Like I set my mind, like I knew that I was going to be on Wheel of Fortune. I know that sounds ridiculous, but that was the thing me and my dad watched every night at seven o'clock together. It was like our thing. And I, and I got on it and I was on Wheel of Fortune. And so, and same with like the marathons, I knew that I was going to run Boston. I knew I was going to qualify. I knew I was going to run it. So somehow I'm going to do a TEDx speech. I just don't know how yet, but I'm going to do it. That's my big pie in the sky dream. (laughs) I think the bigger question is, how did you do on Wheel of Fortune? Uh, well, so <laughs> and I use Wheel of Fortune. It's funny because I talk about it in my speech as well, like how, again, you can't control things. So, yeah, I did not do great because the big wheel was not nice to me. So, um, yeah, I had $15,000 in front of me and I hit bankrupt. So, oh, oh. yeah, spicy salmon with caramelized onions. That was the phrase I could not like the first word spicy, I could not figure it out. So I want to whop in $3,000. It didn't even pay for my trip out there, wow. <laughs> but it was fun. It was like such a fun experience to say, like I was on Wheel of Fortune and I met Vanna and Pat, you know, some, I mean, for someone who like grew up 
And it was such a big thing with me and my dad. It's such a horrible thing because he died 10 days before, like 20 days before my show aired. So we never oh. even got to see him. Yeah. I believe he saw it. I believe he saw it. I do. How how game shows were such a huge thing for you and your dad. My mom and I are the same way. We every time we see a game show, we're like, we're gonna go on it. Like we would love on Supermarket Sweep where you're running around the I love that. I love Supermarket Sweep. Oh my mom and I well, she's still she's a retired teacher, but works at a grocery store. And I used to work at a grocery store. We're like, we could easily do this show and we're trying to get on it, but you know, they tape and I don't even know if they're taping. They taped last year or if there's even a season coming out, they need to. But all these game shows, it's just something that her and I bonded over. And I feel like that was the same with you and your dad is bonded over it. Absolutely. It's funny because like, you know, I grew up in the 80s and there's these like Instagram things going around. That's like, if you were a sick kid in the 80s, here's what you had. Chicken noodle soup, saltines and Price is Right. And it's so (laughs) like Bob Barker, 11 o'clock on CBS. Every time I was sick, and that was you know, my, my, you know, I just remember my dad, like, and I watching, you know, if he was home from work or during the summers, because he didn't really work that much in the summers, like watching Price is Right at 11 o'clock every day. And then Wheel of Fortune. And back then at Wheel of Fortune, you had to like spin the wheel and you would win prizes, like not money. So they'd have like $50 left and everybody would be like, I'll take the ceramic dog for $50. Like everybody's <laughs> so angry that they'd have to buy this like stupid ceramic dog. It was hilarious. <laughs> so yeah, me and my dad, we loved Wheel of Fortune. So when I got on it, um, it was like, he was the first person that I called. When I got out of there, like you signed all these waivers, like you're not supposed to tell anyone. And he, I, I was like, I have to call my dad. So he was like the <laughs> only person, thank God I told him what I won and how I did and everything. Um, so he at least knew, he at least knew that. Looking at your journey, if you describe yourself in one word, how would you describe yourself throughout your journey that you've been on? Without a doubt, determined. For sure. For sure. I love hearing that because you have basically rose to the challenge with every step that you've taken and you have shared such a vulnerability where you are there to speak and help other people that maybe go through a chronic disease. And that's just empowering for you. And we thank you for doing that. Thank you. And I say too, like it helps them. I feel like it also helps me in a way, right. Mm -hmm. Getting out there and sharing my story. It's like therapy in a way for me. It helps. It does. It helps. It helps me as well. I feel like, you know, I can't run anymore. And so I found some other things that sort of have helped fill that void that I, you know, and this as stupid as it sounds, maybe um, that's one of them. What have been some other fun things that you do when you're not working? So I have become a huge traveler. I love like a world. So this is what I like. I love traveling. And and a lot of times I'll go by myself because other people, because I do own my own business now. So I have the flexibility of traveling if there are times where other people can't. So I travel as much as I can. So I've been to like Jordan, Israel, like Vancouver was a new place that I went to. So I try to travel as much as I can, which is a big thing. And then um I'm a huge like Buffalo Bills fan so I fly up to go to Buffalo Bills games all the time like so during football season like basically I'm up in New York every weekend um because I'm just like a freak but I've learned to become like way much more spiritual like that's been really helpful for me so I can't run but on days where my legs are okay like I can walk my dogs outside 
put your my ear pods in and like listen to a podcast or music just to mm-hmm. kind of zone out and like journal, you know, and kind of meditate and get get feelings out that way, which is something I never did or wasn't before I got diagnosed with my disease. And I think that that's really, really helped me a lot as well. The final question I'll ask you for someone that's listened to this interview based on your journey and experience, what tips or advice would you give them to overcome obstacles, accomplish their goals and rise to the challenge? I love it. The first thing I would say is even if you feel like you are, it you can't go any lower, like you are at rock bottom, you can always pull yourself up. You can like you, you, there is always someone out there who will help you rise to the challenge. Maybe you feel like you don't have friends or family go online. I guarantee you there is social media when there's someone going through the exact same thing that you're going through and you can help them and they can help you. And that is a hundred percent true because many a times there were nights that that helped me, that helped me. And just like, know that you have to live for today, right? Like there is no tomorrow, but don't let that scare you. Don't let your disease win because you're stronger than your disease. And that is something that took me a little bit of time to realize, but I like, am like, my legs are bad. And I'm like, I don't care. Like if my kids want to do something, I put it, I just store it in the back of my head. I'm like, I'm going to push through it. And just remember that like, you can do that. Yes, you have a disease. Yes, you were maybe handed a crappy set of cards, but you're still here. You're still alive. So enjoy it. And you can do it. Well, Cindy, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show and talking about your rise to the challenge. You're inspiring so many people and we are excited to see what the future looks like for you. Oh, thank you so much, Alex. It really was my pleasure. I loved it. So I really appreciate it. Tune in next time here. My next guest talk about their rise to the challenge. Remember to follow and subscribe on all major audio platforms. Make sure you subscribe to our YouTube channel to get a full-length episode in video format. What path do you take to accomplish your goals? You decide.